0: Hi, oh god, lower that. <laughs> sorry, sorry everybody. <laughs> Hello, uh, too long. Test, test, toes. All right, let's do it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hi everybody, uh, this is the Show Do Tell reading series. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, we have a great lineup today. Um, looking forward to getting started. We have a Christina Canet Gonzalez, uh, Dana Rozier, and Jessica Stiller. Uh, Stilling, I did, I did that again. I always make that mistake for some reason. Uh, we're gonna get started now. Uh, I would like to um, read something uh, before each reading, uh, usually for some connective reason. Uh, but I actually, uh, this one I think is just a phenomenal poem. I read it um, in the Best American Poetry 2019, and. Um, It's by B.B. Francis. It's called Canzoni in Blue, Then "Bluer." I uh, really connected with this being a musician myself. I uh, actually bought a couple of her books uh, just from reading this poem. That's how good I thought it was and how much it moved me. And uh, let me just read it, and we'll we'll get going here. There wasn't music as much as there was terror, so the music became as much a part of the terror as the terror itself, with the swell of the arpeggio building and breaking, building, and breaking upon the shores of you. Your shores wash slowly away, but not slowly enough. You still feel it, every grain of sand a note going under, gluing the body granular and wet. This has happened before. You weren't special. You belonged to no group of any more particular concern than another. But the music has become you. The hurt coming out from your open mouth could open the grave. Let every done wrong haint throw its head back and groan. Not done wrong as in somebody loved left. Somebody is always left. But done wrong as in someone who deserved to have as much as anyone else. Died by another's hands or neglect or the indifference of someone who cared less or just not about you and you sang like you cried until the music of leaving of long gone became you does it matter how many strings it only takes one to make this music but let's say it was the sound of a choir that accompanied the run of blood down leg Let's say a violin sped its notes down the side of a neck, a tirade of pricks, or a high C from a voice thrown sharp as the pieces of skull, a bullet through the head would leave, or the river, the river rushing cold and rock bottomed with its own furious song carries you with it, sings you right over the falls. That is when terror is not blue, but bluer, blue as capillaries bursting from an eye, Blue is the vein under this razor. Blue is the skin beats so far, it breaks into song. A song like this. And I've sung this so many times, dear. My voice is almost given way. And I'm so scared. Yes, that's BB Francis, Canzoni in blue, then Bluer. She's a great poet. Check out her work. Um, Okay, let's get this going. Looking at the wrong. Uh, Do I have? Sorry, guys. I gotta go to my phone. I forgot something. So sorry, sorry about that. Forgot to print something out. Like the very confident host that I am. Okay, uh, Christina connect Gonzalez is a fiction writer and poet. Her work has appeared in H O W Journal, where she later served as assistant editor. She teaches creative writing to the youth at Wrightopia Lab in Manhattan. When not writing, Christina spends her time training, competing in obstacle course races, and Reading everything on earth. She lives in Queens. Hello, Christina. Thank you for being here.
1: I'm going to read some of my poetry today. I hate to apologize in advance, but I'm losing my voice and going to do my best. I'm going to start by reading something that I wrote for my mom, about my mom. I turned 34 this year, and I finally think I figured out how to write about my mother. Of course, it was all in the 90s, but I need, at this juncture, to finally thank my mother for never telling me fairy tales about my future self, for being the one I witnessed patching roof, hanging wall, and failing to write my life, for leaving the acts of drafting, rewriting, sharing out loud, and burning whole pages to me. Mayday. I used to admire those people who had the magician's tricks figured all out. You know the ones who could always explain every shifting of shape, every transfer of weight, who saw where the quarters were kept. But now I just wonder, as they pleasure themselves over cutting and clearing the mist, if they'd ever been good at making some magic themselves. Like, really, what tricks have they tried? Pinata. Piñatas were a huge part of my childhood. I feel that I should just start by saying that. If it were going to be bashed and busted clean open, I wanted to be the batter. But so much was wrong with my aim and technique and, being quite honest, my ability to generate absolute force. That is, if contact were made. So instead, over time, across birthdays and seasons of sun, I talked myself into believing I cared about the structures themselves so bright. While cheering in voice with everyone else, my heart rooted for the rainbow crape, the skin of the mermaid, the troll, or the burst of a star. Somebody always beat it down, its body mashed to tassels and strewn. Hunting through the sheen with everyone else, I could sometimes uncover a Reese's cup. Not always. Almost never. But one time, just once. I tried a new move and fingered the bright colored carcass. My mother, she plucked it right out of my hand, didn't bother saying, no, you can't keep this, as I swore she would certainly say. She surmised, as (laughs) all would, I was doing my best to simply help clean it up. close range. I see what we're doing here, clearing land and making a place where the woman will school the throng of the self-assured and then win the silent, unquantified prize. My dear male figure believed in me in the style that fit in his hands. He gave me string and arrow, pocket knife, and exposure to camouflage young. I would aim as he taught. I would shoot to kill. I would use the words beauty and grace. My draw mirrors his, but this grown-up hunt is feral. It's more. I know just what I'm doing, too. The moment I see you can clear a herd with your aim, your fire. I know the ability to strike and wound is strictly woman's work. Never before in my history of war have I ached for a woman's bullseye. Each time you stick, the weapon chips wood and nicks at something in me. I lose a little, but I lose. Because all I see is you, and all that's true is the shot, premature but puncturing nonetheless. If my futile past endeavors have set precedent for anything, at least they are good for something. They tell me to stop tallying, to lose the mental scorecard that I keep whenever we play. But we're game, even when no starting gun cracks, when no one has hollered go. We are down, up for anything, laid naked to lose without any guaranteed prize. Are you ready to lose this count? I can't. I wish I could. But the board has gone from digital to encrypted behind my eyes. It burns my mind to sleep at night and bleeps it back to life. That okay. it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Christina. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Um, as always, love to hear your writing. Uh, oh, I did an MFA program with Christina. She's a tremendous fiction writer, too. And I think you're, are you basically totally focusing on your poetry right now?
1: Well, like the past year, yeah. I've been yeah. focusing on poetry. It's kind of like taken off in my heart and just following it.
0: Um, so while reading your poems, I was struck by the way uh, May Bay, close range, all parts, and piñata are so intrinsically linked uh, to watching or gazing. Even blue light, which does not seem to involve an active act of gazing, concludes with a vivid description of a score being kept encrypted behind the eyes. So I, obviously, observation is a part of writing poetry, uh, observing a scene, observing your own thoughts, but. It's striking to me how these poems almost feel entirely like a gaze uh, in the case of uh, what you read today. Um, whether it's your younger self gazing at the past, or in the case of May Day, gazing at other people gazing. So, what what does it mean to you uh, to be a watcher of your poems? Is there something in the poetic form uh, that makes this approach more accessible uh,
1: than in prose? Um, yeah, I think for me, um, particularly with poetry, I always start a piece with a question, something that I want to explore. And for me that always starts, that always starts with looking at something that I've been deeply inside, whether it's conflict or a relationship or just something so small as learning how to shoot an arrow at it as an adult when I was really good at it as a kid. Um, not to actually kill anything. I feel like I have to say that. I'm not, I don't like to Um But I, it, it's always a matter of, for me, taking a step outside of something that I've been like, deeply entrenched in and being able to examine it so I can answer the questions I have about it. Um, and that's how I compose a poem. And when I feel like the answer, at least the answer for today, is complete, that's when I feel like the poem is finished, too. So yeah, it always starts with watching. Sometimes watching
0: myself in the beginning. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So much. Thank you. Thanks for being here. OK, Christina, Kenneth Gonzalez. Thank you. OK, one second. OK, thanks for bearing with me in a lot of different ways. I <laughs> appreciate it. Um, OK, uh, Jessica Stilling's uh, second novel, uh, um, uh, Jessica Stilling's second novel, The Beekeeper's Daughter, uh, was published this December, along with her YA novel, Into the Fairy Forest. Jessica has published in numerous magazines and journals, including the Warwick Review, Mrs. Magazine, Bus Magazine, and the Writer Magazine. She teaches at the Gotham Writers Workshop and currently lives in New York City. Another new school connection, because we're the best. (laughs) Yeah, come on up.
2: reading the first chapter of my novel, which came out in December. Um, this novel takes place in three parts. Um, it, it really explores, um, at the heart of it, the issue of women dealing with mental illness, and what that means, and what that looks like, and how society perceives it. And um, so it's in three parts. The first part is a woman named Lorelei, who was named after a Sylvia poem. Um, dealing with her mother's own mental illness and her own issues in her life and the second part deals with Sylvia Plath herself and her own issues um, with mental illness and her husband and Ted Hughes and all that and then the third part has to do with Esther Greenwood who is Plath's protagonist in The Bell Jar um, and plays with that idea as well. Um, but this is the first chapter, um, it is Lorelei's chapter. Um, and so it, it deals with you know, a modern woman living now, um, and sort of how she navigates that space. Um, all right. It is no night to drown in a full moon, river lapsing, black beneath bland river sheen I hear Plath again, the poem my mother used to half sing before bed, at the dinner table, any time her mind wandered. I hear it in the back of my mind as I watch the ocean off Cape Cod and consider swimming too far out, slipping further. There's always a moment when I might just drown, just let it happen. They let Barry Larson out of prison last week. It took a while for the letter, an official-looking piece of paper stamped with a crest of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, to come. But I knew he might get parole. It's only some of my business. Maybe, in some circumstances, it's none of my business. And I have tried to keep my distance, since we're still basically strangers. I remember the day I learned his daughter, Heather, had been killed. It was a week after I would found out about her affair with my husband. In that time, I kicked Theo out of the house. I tried to ignore Heather, who was one of my English 201 Introduction to Modernism students at the college where I teach. I tried to stick my head in the sand. I was so angry at the two of them. And then I found out that Heather had died. Her cousin had beaten her to death after her father had given him the keys to the warehouse where he, where he worked, and where the cousin did it. After that, there was no room for, any, for my anger, no room for anything but sorrow and guilt, and I kept my distance from Heather and her family, knowing that, that was what they'd want. Tonight, all I can hear as I stare out at the ocean, at Cape Cod, is the dim Sylvia Plath poetry my mother used to whisper to me when I couldn't sleep. I look out at the ocean, just past where the waves are breaking. When they're breaking, they might bring you in. It's when they stop, when they remain calm a long way out. That's when you know you've gone too far. That's when to worry. The blue water mist dripping, scrim after scrim, the fresh water through fishermen sleeping, the Lorelei. Lorelei. The Sylvia Plath poem I loved as a child because we shared the same name. My mother loved the poem as well. She'd been one of those post-70s feminists in the early 80s. And my father always said she used to walk around the house on Cape Cod, her belly a great round mound. Like the moon, she used to say, but I think she got that from somewhere else, my father once told me. She'd walk around singing this platform to me. Lorelei the Lorelei, she'd say, a woman who could control men with a single gaze. She'd just look at them, and they'd fall in love with her. Such raw power. A woman needs that. She was older when she had me, in her in her late thirties. She was not supposed to be able to get pregnant, she used to say. I was her little miracle, she'd continue on her good days. On her bad days, all her words were poison, and she'd spit them with such vitriol that it took me into my adulthood to truly come to terms with the things that she'd said. I used to swim when I was younger. A little girl growing up in Waltham, Massachusetts, I was on the swim team. The breaststroke was my favorite, not that it wasn't everyone. It's really very simple. You just, when you think about swimming, that's what you think about, and that's what you do. Once, my mother went too far out. We were swimming together on the beach near nightfall. She shouldn't have been out. The lifeguards had already told us to come in, but we stayed a few minutes longer bobbing in the water together. Watch this she said, and she just started swimming, doing the crawl along the waves until I couldn't see her anymore. I treaded water as long as I could, waiting for her to come back. I was 12 years old. I felt like I was in the middle of the ocean out there, and I just kept going. She went under. I didn't see her come back up. By then, I knew my mother antics. Sometimes she'd run and hide in the house and wouldn't come out, even when I called from her for over an hour. When I was 12 years old, She used to do things like that. Yet I called out after her as the water lapped over my head and I went under. The current had its great fist at my ankle, and I barely pulled myself up. I crawled to shore, stroke after stroke, waves bleeding over me, and I felt like I was falling. My mother didn't come back. I sat on the beach and waited for her. If I were older, I would have run for help, but I just sat there, stunned. It wasn't that I didn't know what to do. It's just that I couldn't move. Eventually, she came out covered in seaweed. She crawled out a few feet back, and I hadn't seen her in the dark. But she came up to me, looking like the creature from the Black Lagoon, put her hand on my shoulder, and motioned toward the house. It was time to go back. My mother did things like that. As a child, I did not question them. No night to drown. Oh, Sylvia. She was so like my mother. We used to visit Cape Cod every summer and stay at my grandparents' little bungalow on the ocean. The house had been in the family for three generations. My great-grandfather, a speakeasy owner in Boston, bought it, back when a house on the Cape did not require three diversified portfolios and a CEO position in a city like Boston or New York. The house is falling apart and hopeless-looking. The clapboard walls dingy with despair. Two, maybe three shutters are about to fall off. But it's worth a fortune now. I wonder sometimes why my father, who inherited from his grandfather, doesn't sell it. It's been years since my mother and I used to swim. It's been a single year since she finally went too, too far. Not in the ocean, but in the bathtub. There were also pills involved. There are no lifeguards tonight, no people, just a few bonfires up the beach, probably six, seven city blocks away. I strain to hear voices, the gentle murmur of nightcaps on the beach before heading back. The light over the house betrays an unexpected but uninvited guest, and I shake my head at how predictable my life has become. My white cotton dress snags for a second on the small wooden stake in the ground that denotes the barrier between our property and the property belonging to another rich Bostonian who never comes to visit. The cotton is warm and rustic on my skin, and I feel it over my shoulders before marching to the house on this visitor. The outline of his body comes into focus, the way he stands, hips slightly shifted, his hair longer than it was last week. He is the kind of man who always puts off getting the next haircut. I walk nearer to his trimmed beard, as his trimmed beard skews my impression of his face. Amen, I call, and he smiles and waves like I'm expecting him. This relationship has progressed in the last few months, and now I'm always expecting him, at least at the back of my mind. Some day soon, I should just give him a key. I saw your light on, and I thought I'd come over, he says as I reach the porch. A light shines over its shabby boards, and I grab a towel near the Adirondack chairs and attempt to dry the spray of the sea off my arms. I just wanted to see if you were okay. I'm sorry about the I don't know, the father getting out. I never met him. He didn't kill his daughter, he just let her kill or take take her away. And things got out of hand, Eamon muttered, shaking his head. He didn't know me when this happened. He never met Heather or her father, and still this upsets him. I just wonder, you know, if her cousin never found out, if he wasn't a possessive little chick who thought it was okay to beat a girl to death for having an affair. It's the what ifs, right? What if the affair had been quietly handled instead of all of this? You can't think like that. Are you all right? What are you going to do there? He asked, his eyes big, like he's looking out to sea and all he can see is my face. I'm fine. Just water watching. And what does the water do when you watch it, my dear? I should say something deep here, I pondered, instead of saying anything deep. It does tricks, I guess. So how was Liars? What time is it? I reach up and kiss his cheek. He pulls me close, and I smell the bar where he works on his clothes, smoking cigarettes and the bitter bite of spilled whiskey. He breathes deeply, and I take him in. Amon is very big. He's tall and broad, and at another time, he might be mistaken for a Viking. He works at a bar called Liars, a seedy joint of a place for locals only, those old-fashioned Massachusetts fishermen who still carry lobster lobster crates into the water. The men who wear rubber overalls, boast about the Red Sox, and use the word wicked, not in reference to a witch. It's a place where bar fights are prevalent and nothing is high-end. It's also the kind of bar that doesn't close until well after 1 a.m. I didn't stay the whole night, left at 10, and I thought I'd stop by. Some guy came in all happy about Trump, you know? He said we can't wait until we deport those slimy foreigners, and when I asked him if he thought I was a foreigner, you know, because of the accent, he laughed and said, white foreigners are okay. White foreigners don't leech money. It got a little heated after that. Another guy threatened to beat him up, if he didn't take that red-hot hat off, and he left on his own. People were a little on edge after that. And then it left a bad taste in my mouth, so I left. I can imagine, being an Irish guy in Boston, you must not get many sideways laughs. County Kerry, people like the accent,
3: Eamon
2: said. It's a lovely accent, I said. Sitting on the side of the Adirondacks chair, I draped my arm around him. Water still clings to me in tiny salt crystals, and the light flickers for a second. Not as lovely as your accent, Lorelei. He gives me those eyes. Big, blue, bottomless eyes. So, I got some more wood from the worksite over in Dennis. I'm going to start fusing it with some metal scraps to see what comes out. Sounds very blue-collar. All artists are blue-collar, especially sculptors. I don't care how much money they make or where they live. They work with their hands. They have to create something from scratch. There's wood and clay and metal, workmens materials as blue-collar as you can get. True. Despite the fancy graduate degree in studio art he barely uses. Eamon fits the blue-collar description to a tee. Apparently, art degrees are only good for tending bar. He lives in a two-room apartment above a liquor store in Wealthy. He works at a bar, takes odd jobs, sometimes carpentry and painting. One time, he spent a month summing for a guy at a bookstore. He usually adjuncts a couple of classes at Cape God Community College. But he shows regularly at galleries in Provincetown, Bar Harbor, and Yarmouth. Once a summer, he has work up in the Hamptons. Every three or four years, he looks into a gallery show in New York. One time, he did a show in San California. He straddles the line of successful and unsuccessful very well. Headlights run across the porch for a second, and the sound of tires on gravel crunches over the sound of sifting waves. And why my father never bothered to pave the driveway after all these years, I will never understand. I remember the rocks in the drive that used to cut my feet when I ran in the yard as a child. You'd think a child would learn, but children never learn when they're distracted. Who would that be parking next to my pickup? Eamon muses. The sound of feet shuffling over rocks and soft cries of shit, shit, shit replaces the sound of tires crunching over the newly processed driveway. I do not move from my spot, and Eamon doesn't appear too interested. You know, you really should pee that freaking driveway, Lorelei. A voice that is both rough and amused comes out of the darkness of the netherworld beyond my porch light. If not my house, call my father in Florida and tell him to take care of it. I reply as my friend Amelia appears. She looks as if she's come out of the water. Her hair is stringy and wet. Her dress clings to her and she does not wear but carries her Christian Louboutin heels dangling from one finger as if they're some kind of red-soled accessory. What happened? I asked, and Amelia leans against the weather-worn post of my porch. Fell in the pool. Maybe I jumped. It was hard to tell. Took my shoes off first. Then I got an Uber home. That kind of party, eh? Eamon asks, placing one hand on my shoulder. It feels like the paw of some kind of bear. I don't remember. Amelia shakes her head. There were a few too many cocktails. I really thought it would be more sophisticated, a party for Vogue magazine, but it got out of hand. I guess what stays, what happens on the cape stays on the cape. Is it that way? I ask, plying her fuchsia pink Diane von Faustenberg dress. It was a find at a thrift store, $16, and it fits Amelia's ample curves perfectly and clashes with her auburn hair in such a way that it seems intentional. I don't know. But tomorrow night, there's this hors d'oeuvres thing. Much more classy. You should come, Lorelei. You're still coming, right? I promise it won't be jump in the pool crazy. I nod calmly and look up at the ocean. The thought of a party makes me want to dive back into it. I'm coming. My aunt Sarah isn't from New York. She's going to be there. Great. I love Sarah. And I just think, I mean, you wanted to get away. Out of the city. Away from that. I know. It's nice with all the privacy, but you need to see people you need to network. There will be people there who might end up getting advanced copies of your next book. Amelia is the kind of woman who is constantly telling other people to network. The book I have yet to write, I reply. The book you will write, Amelia urges. This is what happens. The story's been told a 1,000 times. Author has big book. Author has emotional trauma in her personal life. Brought on by a cheating husband, it was more than that, I add, picturing Heather, much more. I know, Amelia acknowledges. And I wonder if she knows about Mr. Larson getting out. Then, author has more trouble writing second book. Author's best friend brings her out of it and saves her by being awesome. I know, something like that. I can't help but laugh at Amelia, wondering how much she's had to drink. At the very least, she hasn't fallen over. The waves rock, like they're sighing us to sleep. And I catch the gentle pull as Eamon shifts his hand from my shoulder and places it on my knee. General background noise comes from the bonfires at the beach, but it is silent, the kind that calls to mind awkward glances and crickets. When I hear the ping of metal falling from the heavy crack of something shattering at the other side of the house. What was that? Eamon asks, getting to his feet. He moves and staggers, feet apart, like he doesn't know what they're for. And I wonder how many he's had before leaving the bar. He's probably a rabbit, maybe a raccoon. Do they have raccoons on Cape Cod? Amelia asks. I don't know. Maybe I should check it out, I say. And Eamon puts his hands up. I will look into it, he says. He speaks just like a knight in shining armor, or like he's mocking one. I can't quite tell. Maybe it's the alcohol or the ocean. Maybe it's just that he's here with two women, or the racist guy at the bar earlier who really seemed to piss him off. But he wants to handle this, and I'm too tired not to let him. Just let me see. He grabs a long pole that usually goes with each umbrella as a weapon. It's yellow and made of flimsy metal, but at the very least it has a spike at the end. If given a chance, it could probably do some damage. He stays up on unsteady feet and then nearly tumbles into the side of the pole he meant to defend us with. You okay? Amelia half asks at him, and he turns back. I have this firmly in hand, I'll have you know. He walks toward the side of the house as if on tiptoes. But a man like Eamon, he's big, of good Irish stock, all muscle and bone, the kind of body that has two sizes on just about anyone. And tiptoeing just doesn't seem to work for him. Amelia still laughs as I watch him, carefully round the corner, as if bats might fly at him. Are you OK? I finally ask as he stands there, just staring at the side of my father's 85-year-old bungalow. He turns his head and then slips on something. His arms flail out, and the pole flies away down the bank and into the sand. I'll have to retrieve it later. He yells something, or maybe he just yells, in audible words, a great rumbling like a bear, and falls to the ground. Amen. You okay? I ask, rushing toward him. He is not so proud that he does not lift his hand, allowing me to help him. I pull, and he pushes as he finally gets to his feet. Fine. Perfectly fine. But it appears there's something, Amen says. And I turn to the space by the window in the living room that he'd been eyeing. What is that? A ceramic planter has been turned over. Part of it is broken, but I never cared for plants or planters, my thumbs being entirely black. I walk the few paces to the spot where the living room light shines on the sandy ground and pick up long, a long red and black scarf. I stop for a second. I think I remember that scarf, but I can't place it. The other object lying there is almost too small to be seen in the dark. It's a tube of lipstick in a pinkish case. I open it up and look at the lipstick. It appears to have been used, but infrequently. What is it? Eamon asked. He does not come close, and so I return to the porch where Amelia stands in her wet dress. I don't know, a scarf? Amelia, do do you know who this might belong to? It's really nice. Looks expensive. If someone lost this, don't you think they'd come back for it? I've never seen it, Amelia replies, whose is it? And this lipstick, I say, opening it up and showing it to her like a lipstick, is a completely alien object I must identify to this writer at a fashion magazine. It's red, really, really red. This is like Lady of the Evening Red. You know, Sylvia Plath used to love lipstick. I read about it once in a biography about her in Mademoiselle. She always wore deep cherry red lipstick, very 1950s. That's great. So Sylvia Plath came here and left a very nice scarf and her lipstick behind. Eamon counters. What was that noise? Aren't either of you nervous? Should I call someone? Knight in shining armor, take two. Someone broke a planter, or something. I'm betting it was a raccoon. But I look at the window ledge to see that not only is a mud-colored planter shattered, but a piece of the windowsill, one of the white painted boards, has come off. This is an old house, and stuff like this is bound to happen. Still, someone must have been pulling on it. A raccoon with a penchant for nice scars and red lipstick, Eamon asks. Aren't you just a little concerned? I know your father doesn't have much in the way of valuables, but maybe someone was staking out the place. And what if it's concerning? It's not, I counter quickly. It can't be. I have an alarm system. I just think we should call someone. The day you get a letter saying the father was let out of prison, this happens. I just think we should call and, and say what? That a man who has just been let out of jail might have come to my house and left some makeup? I don't have any proof, but you know, he has a criminal record. Is that what you want me to say to the police, all because I found a scarf and a lipstick? Anyone could have done this. Maybe one of my other students. I don't know. I'm sure word could get out that Heather's father got out of prison. And now people are sending me emails, and everyone's up in in flurry. Some of them blame me. I was her professor. All the more reason to call the police, Eamon argues. They'll only bother him. I don't want that on my conscience. The man was put, was just put on parole, and he needs, and he does not need this kind of trouble. If you say so, Eamon acquiesces. Thank you, I reply, smiling sheeplessly to him. Because I know, and I realize, that it's probably a good idea to call the police. But I'm not going to. I look at this scarf in my hand. It's familiar, like seeing something from your childhood and not being able to place it. I wonder if Heather used to have a scarf like this, but I remember hers. It had this flower pattern and not so much splashes of color on it. You think it could be hers, really? And you don't want me to call the police, Amon asked. No, I remember one of my students told me they buried her with a, with a scarf. Maybe it's just a popular scarf, Amelia interjects, and I can tell that this is her being practical. I walk closer to the window to see if anything else is damaged. The wood isn't rotting, that's good. I don't want my father to have to worry about anything like termites. But there's a hole in the indent under the sill, and I see something white, not natural wood. Something is pushed in there, like it was buried. What is this? It doesn't appear Eamon or Amelia can hear me. I reach in and pull out a hardcover book with moldy blackened pages that looks like soft and wet. I found something in the window. Something in the window? You sure it's safe? Eamon says as Amelia wanders over wordlessly. I don't know. I open the book and read the inscription, Property of Magdalena Bauer, Personal Journal, 1968. It's my mother's. Her journal. I flip through it, and only a few pages, maybe 20, are covered with her flowery, rushed script the kind she had used to write notes to my teachers at school. It starts well before I was born. She was in high school in 1968. It was a tough year for her. I remember my aunt telling me about it. That was the year that her friend died. She had a run-in with some boy that she was dating that just made her so depressed. I never got the details. I remember that was the year that her mental health started to become an issue. Wow, that's heavy. You think that's the start of her mental issues? Not not that there's any concrete start. Eamon says Are you going to read it? I don't know. It's not as though she was very forthright when she was alive. I wonder if it would be okay to read a woman's private thoughts like that. She's dead. Amelia says and I can hear the alcohol slurring her voice like a record skipping. I'm sure she'd want her daughter to understand her. Maybe, I say, closing the book. Amelia, do you need to change I'll leave this other stuff on the table and deal with it tomorrow. We should all head to bed. I keep the journal, but leave the scarf and lipstick out. I'm not afraid to go to bed tonight, not with the alarm on. Amen. Are you staying? Always, he replies, draping an arm around me. Bed, right, Amelia says as if it's an afterthought. I need to be rested for that party tomorrow. Lorelai, you're going. You're just... I won't take no, you're going. Of course. I place my hand on Amelia's back, and she turns towards the house. It's open, I call, and she lets herself in. We should follow, I tell Amen, and he ushers me inside. He walks over to the couch, he always does, and I hold him by the hand, bringing him upstairs. We met last summer when I paid a visit to the seedy bar where he works. It was just after my mother had passed, a year after the fiasco of my husband's affair and Heather's death. I wasn't in the mood. Poor, shiny, happy people. And I'd ended up at Liars. We didn't do much there those first few weeks. We just sat together and hung out until we were comfortable enough to go out, to talk all night, to stay over. It was supposed to be the just-started the divorce proceedings thing. But we stayed in touch much better than I thought we would after I returned to Boston to teach during the year. Nothing has been decided as far as our relationship goes. Not yet. The baggage we carry into our adult years, after the world has run us over a few times, accumulates on our backs. But when I'm with Eamon, I feel like he lists the baggage, takes a couple of suitcases, and gives me a room to breathe. You still need to come to the craft gallery. My piece is up in the window tomorrow, before the party. I can't very well miss the showing of the next great Irish expat. You cannot, he replies giving me a gentleman's bow before I head towards the soft light of the bedroom with the journal in hand. I'll wait until Eamon's asleep. He can't help it. He always falls asleep before me. With the insanity of the last two years came about with insomnia that lets up about every third evening. I'll wait until I cannot hear Amelia showering in the next room, perhaps until the waves have quieted, but the waves never quiet. That's the beauty of them. I'll open the journal and read it. It says, property of Magdalena Bower. Property of my mother when she was in high school. I'll flip through the pages and maybe there'll be nothing. Like when I was, like when I passed the time with a magazine before heading to work, or those piles of freshman comp papers I never have enough time for. Then again, maybe this journal will be like reading *The Bell Jar* for the first time, or *The Old Man in the Sea*, or *The Waves*. Maybe these words will be as life-changing as the time I ran off on the beach with Theo, my ex only to marry him six months later, as life-altering as my first novel was the first time my mother read me "Goodnight Moon as a child, and I couldn't sleep for a week. I don't know why those words were so haunting, but they terrified me.
0: Yes And uh, you have some books, right? You have some, some copies with you? I, I do have a couple good, books. good. Not many copies. Yes, it's very exciting for me to hear that because um, workshops, uh, we're working on a couple books and just to, to see this come out is fantastic. I'm very, very happy. Thank for you. you. And um, I was actually thinking like while you were reading, um, I'm reading this book called The Movie Goer right now by um, well, like I can't like think straight sure right now. Uh, Yeah, Walker Percy. Thank you very much. I was reading an article uh, about him, and uh, he was discussing how he was struggling as a novelist uh, until he started directly incorporating ideas, philosophical ideas, uh, into his work. And so he was very influenced by French writers in that regard. And uh, this is a book with so many ideas, uh, especially pertaining to women's reproductive rights, uh, domestic violence, violence against women, obviously. And I wanted to ask you, as, as a writer, when, when you feel that the writing is at a point where the ideas are kind of almost invisible in the text, where they're not overtly there, and that process of writing is like, how long did that take? When did you maybe feel it clicking? And does that question does that gotta make sense yet?
2: I think that what's interesting about writing a story is that you don't really have as much control as you think you have. And the characters do what they want to do, and the ideas do what they want to do. And what's interesting is that it all comes together anyway. And so that usually when I'm writing something, um, it doesn't necessarily click until something that I didn't think was going to happen or something that I didn't want to happen happens. Um, and, and that's really the beauty of it. So the ideas come organically. Um, I definitely didn't set out to write a book about women and mental illness. I set out to explore the life of Sylvia Plath through a, a more modern lens. And I honestly didn't think it was going to be in three parts, and I didn't think I was going to put so much of the journals in the book. And, um, and I didn't think that I was going to have ideas about mental illness be so prevalent. But
0: it turns out the book does what the book wants to do, and you have very little control over it. And that is what makes it so beautiful. Thank you. That's thank you. I so appreciate it. Again, there are book's here. Um, thank you, Jessica. We're going to take about a three, four, five-minute break uh, before we have Dana uh, close it. I want to thank everybody for the patience, too. I know we uh, have. Uh, the hits the billboard charts of 2002 playing in the background if you guys want to check that out if you want to like pretend you're at like an awesome party in 2003 um but we will have one more reader after a little bit of a break thanks for bearing with me us and uh you know buy drinks that was awesome Tip now. okay and uh, we'll, we'll finish up soon okay That's what you gotta do. So, you know, I don't know. I don't have anything like inspirational to say. It's not my forte. Oh, yeah. If I had to say something depressing, I about the situation, <laughs> I could do that. But it would just come out of me, actually. Trying, <laughs> trying to be to be inspirational, this doesn't come after. But I genuinely feel like uh, it's all good. So, and uh, the main thing is uh, the, the the writing and the reading and the whole deal. So. Um, Dana Rozier's uh, fourth book, All Transparent Things in Thundershirts, won the Wilder Prize at Two Sylvia's Press and was published in September 2019. She is also the author of The Theme of Tonight's Party Has Been Changed recipient of the Juniper Prize, as well as Beautiful Motion and In the Truth Room, both winners of the Samuel French Morse Poetry Prize. Among her many awards and honors are the Great Lakes College's Association New Writers Award, the Jenny McKean Moore Writer in Washington Fellowship, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a Pushcart Prize, and numerous residencies in the U.S. and abroad, She has read her work widely and taught the MFA programs in poetry at Purdue, Butler, and Wichita State. Recent poems have appeared or are forthcoming in Pushcart Prize uh, 43, got that? XL33, Crazy Horse, uh, Laurel Review, North American Review, Indianapolis Review, and Notre Dame Review. For more about Dana Rozier, uh, please see danarozier.com. And she also has copies of her book available here. It's a great book, it's fantastic. Uh, so come on. Up. Matt, am I going to need to raise this a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: That was
3: planned, guys. That was
0: planned. <laughs> that was, that was um, physical comedy. That's so okay. what I invested Okay. Okay. <laughs> And this is the cost your I phone? This, I
4: think this might be too high. Oh, okay. Can we
0: come down just a little
4: bit? I won't
3: see anything. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, hi, everybody.
4: Is this on? Is it yeah. happening? No. It came off. Oh, you, you were in charge of it? Okay. Is it working now? Yeah. Okay, okay, good. Okay. Just give me one second.
3: I have to find the phone. Uh, Okay.
4: All right. Um, I'm gonna have to look a little this way to get the daylight. So thank you very much for having me, for hosting me, and thank you, Matt. It's wonderful to be here. I'm really enjoying the atmosphere. So I'm the (laughs) I'm the uplifter. I I much prefer to read in this environment than some of the other, you know, classrooms and laboratories and stuff that I'm reading in. You know, just makes you sound immediately and makes you think of grading papers and stuff. Okay, um, uh, I'm gonna need to get my phone. Sorry, I'm just going to try to see a little bit. OK, so I have four poems to read. One of them's a little long, but they're supposed to add up to 15 minutes. And the first one is called um, Transparent Things, God-Sized Hole. Um, I just wanted to point out before I start that it features shirts. and I want to make sure that everybody knows what those are. because. If you don't own one of those little, absurd dogs, saw also just now out on the sidewalk recently. Those little, absurd dogs, I, I hate to call them absurd, because someone here might really have one that goes right here, but they, you know, you know how they wear coats and all that stuff. Well, they're also, this, this is true of larger dogs too, but they're also terrified of thunderstorms and have, wear these sort of stra- thing with straps. You notice that they, they, they wear a thing called a thunder shirt and it has all these straps and it's supposed to like reduce their anxiety. So, uh, and at home also features weighted blankets and etc. Okay. Is this light bothering you? Because it's not, but it's helping me. Okay. Transparent things, God's eyes <laughs> Uh I'm a Zumba practitioner, so just <laughs> be prepared. Uh, all transparent things need undershirts. The little ghost hanging from an eave on Underwood Street, a piece of lavender-tinted netted stretched onto a metal frame. The Boston Terriers and Chihuahuas patiently wait out storms their, with their eyes bulging in their special wraparound shirts. My family used to laugh at me sleeping under two down quilts, wearing a wool hat in summer when I said I was afraid otherwise I would fly up to the ceiling. Once on a sidewalk beside Erie Street around the corner from Underwood, where the pointless, obsolete tracks run to a dead end on the other side, I found a black and silver rosary with shining onyx beads like the ones you see hanging from the belts of nuns in their habits or priests in their trusses. I kept it carefully until either I lost it or it got buried in the bottom of a purse, abandoned under my bed, or in a closet. Clutter keeps me bound to this earth. I told Patty last night that the God-sized hole in me was so big and vacant, voracious and spacious. It was like I was running some kind of desperate toddler's shape-sorter game, trying to find something that fit to plug into it. I'd stuff anything in there, regardless of whether the shape coincided with the opening. It was like I could look at the sky and attract space junk, broken satellites, spent rocket stages, micro to plug the gap. The wind is its own kind of chaos, sometimes like a sheet of itself tangled or flowing on a celestial clothesline. It needs a weighted blanket. Little red flags on the maple at the corner of Underwood and Erie near the swishing yard. Slow-moving locomotives that might be driven by nobody. Flags hold the tree down. Mark it. Make it know it's real. Flapping on the flaming maple when falling.
3: Okay, so the next one is really...
4: It's a. Uh it's all kind of all jammed together and goes really fast. And so if you miss something, you'll just have to hop on a couple of lines later. It doesn't have any punctuation and uh, it's kind of about making art. It's kind of about the absurdity of being in that in the other economy. I've been thinking about that since I've been in New York about the sort of the negative economy
3: <laughs>
4: that's all of living really make. Less or nothing, Um, but put a tremendous value on what we do. So it's it's a it's a lot about that. I think, Uh, although I probably shouldn't give it an about because it's got a lot of horses in there too and other things that you might uh, wonder what the heck I'm talking about. Okay, my hobby needed a hobby. My hobby needed a hobby. You know how you get a dog and you have a dog and then Kurt says. We need to get the dog a puppy. The dog needs somebody to play with her, to teach. And then you have a baby. Bossy baby needs a baby. Needs a little baby, and another baby. And then, like, you have a thing that you don't get paid any money for. It's like an art. You do it for the love of it. Sooner or later, though, it gets, too, you know, it starts to make you nervous. You get caught up in politics. It doesn't matter that there's not any money. It's prestige, rankings, and who's up and who's down. So that thing you were calling this vocation, the thing you did for art's sake, you know, you didn't want to get paid for it because you loved it so much. It was like you loved the work, it felt like play. I mean you looked up after several hours, you were so absorbed, you didn't even know where the time went when it gets onerous because this <clears throat> currency is being traded and you know it is starting to get heavy. It starts to be as heavy as coins. People even use expressions like, coin of the realm, my stock went up. Or my stock went down. Or somebody or other didn't use their political capital. All that kind of crap. So now your hobby, your art, needs a hobby that feels completely free and doesn't have anything to do with the buying and selling, attaching your work to some chips or tokens, markers, or whatever. So you've got to get a new free thing where you get completely absorbed and work feels like play. Well, so I found one. My pet. The pet little sister of my first pet is some horses. Well. Then I get to the stable, forget about time, waste like five hours, at a pop. After a few years, start wearing a wash. But I'm not going to worry yet since I'm... So I'm washing off the barrel the horse that I'm helping to pay for, but still, it's still it feels pretty free. I don't go to horse shows. I'm like 63 years old. People consider it a miracle that I'm even staying on, which I'm barely doing. My trainer and I <clears throat> spend half the time gossiping to the point where we he decide we probably have to go to lunch. So I'm watching Barrow off, and Barrow is starting to squirm a little about his head out in the pasture. He can just make out through the fence. I can tell he has a pet. The horses all have buddies. His pet is Vinny the donkey. And when I <clears throat> went to get him before my lesson, he was chasing the red horses because he thought they were bothering Vinny. He does tolerate Love Bug, the white pony, though. <clears throat> because Lovebug is, he does tolerate Lovebug, the white pony, though, because Lovebug is Vinny's little brother, his inseparable companion. <clears throat> He's familiar. I go to get Birdo. He's in a herd of black horses, and one starts to pin its ears and foment a little stampede. But I yell at my hateful yell, and it stops. And Birdo walks peacefully to the gate with me. He acts sometimes like I'm his buddy which makes me shine all over, never mind the transactional aspect. The treats and carrots I'm loaded down with most of the time fan the word transactional. And also, any consideration of the fantasy lovers, mine and probably my husband's. Not exactly pets or little brothers. The priest tonight said, we each have an angel. This is really the first I'd heard of it. And I start picturing my crush bathed in light. Oops, no, my angel. I mean, my real one, though I don't think it, he, she, it's my pet, but more like I'm it's. I'm surrendered as somebody's distraction from their day job. Your support poodle, crossing buddy, safe space, spice cake. OK, um, the next poem is Crush. Um, this is the longer one. It has pauses in it. Um, It has a lot of different threads. One of them is the death of the narrator's, or the illness, the serious illness of the narrator's father. And There's a bunch of romantic, if you want to call them romantic crushes and other kinds of crushes in here. Okay, crush. Why do they call it crush? The man strapped in horizontal on the hydraulic lift, then tipped vertical, bellowing, I am standing up. The nurse is try- trying to strategically catapult him into the bathrooms so he can brush his teeth. Greg described my dad's menu as mechanically softened. They actually take the entire ribeye steak or chicken parmigiana and put it through a meat grinder. On Irish night, my father uncharacteristically screamed, this is revolting. I won't eat it. Imagine corned beef and cabbage and paste. I heard later that the patrons in the main dining room were reimbursed the price of their dinners. That's how unsavory the entrees were even before porferization. I had Irish cream shrimp or a soaking baked potato. Crush. Coup de foudre. Blow to the head. Lightning strike. It's annoying to fall for a garden-variety womanizer with whom I have nothing in common. And I'm not the only one. Whole 12-step meetings filled with women who have washed their hair. I feel like giving that thing a blow to its head, but it keeps sashaying up to me when I'm shaking my pelvis to some pining, thrusting love song in Zumba class, like a cat 5 hurricane in the Wall of Wind simulator. My father begs me, I mean begs, for red grapes. Red grapes, he says, for a sip of water, his hand in a pinch. Just one. No, I want real water. Thickener is put in every drink he ingests. What if he breaks your heart, my friend, Cicely says, her inquiring open face tilted up to mine? A moment before when I was extolling his charms, and have you <clears throat> and when I was extolling his charms, and have you seen the other side of that? I have to say, yes, he is very wound up. Sally was lit up like a sparkler, her thinning gray hair every which way, getting stupendously drunk, but still strikingly aware. She told us how her first bone marrow transplant didn't take and she needed to get another one, each time sobering up the only match, her alcoholic brother. Sally was holding a snifter of gin, then glass after glass of white wine. It had been a hard day, she said. As I was standing to leave, she told us about her crush, as was the case the night before when I started in at the restaurant with Anna and Rose. Out came the crushes. She said it had gotten so bad she avoided going into the relevant establishment when she saw her guy's license plate in a parking spot. Forty years married and devoted to his wife, flirting like crazy. She was married to one of those flirts, but somehow she focused him. His fourth wife, 20 years, he adored her until his ailments, the last straw was he, a Pulitzer prize winner, couldn't read the computer screen, got to him. And he shot himself on a visit home from the assisted living place where he'd been living basically without a hip. Sally was in the other room. Sally was on prednisone for years. Between that and the forced menopause, she had several compression fractures in her spine. Crush. Use this word in a sentence. Her spine was crushed. In my father's room, I eat bites from a piece of fake coffee cake from his tray. They've upgraded his diet somewhat from pulverized to smashed, I say in meeting, which makes everyone laugh. But it's too late, he eats almost nothing. I'm going to offer him the sip of water he's not allowed to have. Today he starts hospice, so why not start breaking the rules right away? But he forgets he asked. I've been assured hospice is going to give pleasure foods in a comfort tray. I can't get a clear read of what's on this tray, besides morphine and Ativan. Grief suffuses Hoy Center floor to a especially at night from pulverize to smash. The chair seat slides up, apparently, so Dad's bathroom mate can be put in it lying down. Then he slides down the middle frame when the nurse is tilted upwards. There's some maneuver he needs to do that he and they are screaming about. I'm supposed to keep Dad's door shut. The day room gets afternoon sun. I hear televisions. I dreamt last night my husband was a pile of musty magazines with lint and dust balls. And my love wore a short-sleeved policeman's shirt that was too tight and riding up with snug blue jeans. And an expression like, I've got everything under control here. I'll supervise. Ha, he may as well have been wearing a super ego sign. Though, of course, his suitability for the job was open to question. The day room gets afternoon sun. I hear televisions. My father is past that. He never wants to watch. A woman in a wheelchair, come to think of it, they're all in wheelchairs, howls in the day room. Sundowning has commenced, and my dad demands a wheel a wheelchair ride to his old apartment. I don't know now that tomorrow he'll be too sick and drugged to ask. The day room gets afternoon sun. It lays down panels of light. It's spring, but who would know it? It's been unseasonably warm, and sorry, unseasonably cold the whole month. On the furniture, on the few people doing nothing in wheelchairs except the howler. On the whiteboard, probably, noting the day of the week, the date, and the geographic coordinates of boy Center. Grief suffuses the place, especially at night. This is the last night of my dad's lunatic demands. He wants a grape. He wants to go to the library in the residence and read the Economist. He wants his old life and his old routine back. They put him into his red, and they put him into his pressed red checked shirt. The day room gets afternoon sun. I am crushed by its beauty. Sorry, that was kind of long and hard to sustain while I was rocking out. <laughs> Are my Zumba songs? <laughs> All I can do to keep from breaking out in my little moves. Okay. Okay. So this next one is not so long. Um, it's called His Chemic Beauty. And the epigraph comes from a, the William M- Ensign Villanelle that I think is called Villanelle. And um, so the epigraph is just this line Your Chemic. Beauty burned my muscles through. So if you ever feel really ghastly about being in love with someone, you must go to this poem. It just makes you sicker and sicker until you're ready to die. So it's really a positive experience. Her poets, what can I say? William Empson, very good at those states, those tortured states. Okay. Oh, I don't know. I'm just not that enthusiastic about eating meat anymore, my husband says. And I think, what is the weird visceral pull for me? Sucking on bones of an animal that recently ran around a barnyard in the sun. Creepy, pleasurable, viscous. I need some red, murmuring burst of blood vessels, thinking fleetingly of lethal bacteria, salmonella, etc. I wrestled it raw on a cutting board trying to remember to use the special polyfining one for meat we got when I switched onto this diet from pesca vegetarian I stand between two cigarettes after the 12-step meeting. Lucius and Raymond's were discussing Lucius hypoglycemia, what they had thought was gestational diabetes. I stand between two roses, a man I loved once said. That's when I realized the woman on his other side. <clears throat> Franny was his new girlfriend. I was frigging glad I didn't get a chance with him. It would have ruined my life. I saw him putting a shine on eight months pregnant Lucia, too. She came in the next week with her hair all clean and falling around her shoulders. I live my life between two injections, one on Friday morning and one on Monday which is not working too well because each makes me sick. I'm not fairy dancing down vegetarian lane anymore. It's more like pan grease, caramelized onions in my mouth on the thigh bone of someone who may have struggled against the knife. Clean between the chemo drug that may cause lymphoma and the biologic that may cause lymphoma, rare blood cancers, neurological problems, and that's heart failure and death. And if you happen to have some kind of sleep or TV when you start taking the drug or are unwittingly exposed to it, you're toast. What I mean is I can't make it down the list of side effects to grogginess, faint nausea, dizziness, brain fog, and a shitty headache. I get stuck midway in the catalog the dense black print on the pharmacist's warning sheet before me. Forget the inch-thick package insert. Sight irritation, the least of my worries, right? I live my life between two roses, my husband and this other man. Or my husband as heterosexual, and my husband as person with homoerotic desires. Or the two injections, their toxins coming at me through a needle from two sides. I keep a chart of shot sights for each of my thighs, my elder daughter on the upswing or the downward plunge of her bipolar or my would-be lover and his two would-be flowers. I know the juicy bone of a recently running around chicken, the stubborn sinew, blood vessels in my teeth, gristle. Hyper-plumped up thigh meat I tear off with my cutting teeth, my incisors. But it was raised in humane conditions and done it gently with a head fake and a hatchet. I suck its fat, its juice. It was between two roses.
0: Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm a fall ago. Sorry. <laughs> Not intentionally. Um, so yeah, um, reading uh, Dana's uh, poetry. Actually, I, I uh, didn't didn't mention this when so I sent you the question, but. I was in an MA program a couple years ago, and uh, I didn't know what to do for my thesis. And my advisor suggested writing essays about being a musician. And uh, it felt like a terrible idea to me, uh, because I just couldn't get to anything in an essay form. But I've been writing more poetry lately, and I'm able to to get into there uh, via poetry. And uh, a lot of Dana's poetry has a prose feel, not, or not necessarily a prose feel, but it has the detail, I think, and narrative as well, uh, which you don't always see in, in poetry. That's kind of reminiscent of, of prose, and it kind of, um, thinking about all that kind of like inspired uh, my question, especially uh, uh, the line in Crush um, that says, Crush use this word in a sentence, her spine was crushed. Um, these lines could have been used in something like a first-person essay. However, while reading them in the context of the poem, they feel intrinsically linked with the poetic form. And uh, I felt like they even had like an awareness of the other of forms in them. Um, so do you think uh, poetry helps you have such a frank, intimate conversation uh, with the reader about your life and mind? Uh, and are you influenced by any poets who are bold about sharing their thoughts and desires in their work? Thank okay.
3: um,
4: one of my favorite poets is James Schuyler. He—you um, may not know his work, but um, he was definitely a New York poet. He hung out with Frank O'Hara and Paul um, Auden, uh, et cetera, Whiston, his name was. Anyway, so he has wonderful long poems, all about it. just about everything. But um, I was always inclined to write these. Um, things that were like first person narratives, but it took me about 20 years to figure out actually how to do it. And so one of, the, one of the things about it, one of the reasons why they're in poems and not in personal essays is because I do not have to
3: adhere to the truth.
4: And this is really important. It sounds like the truth, sounds like everything. It happens, but I don't have to think about whether or not I'm going to get dragged on Oprah and have to defend the details. And I don't ever, you know, I don't ever want to have to write like that. I want to be able to do what I'm doing. So that is really important. But another thing, that took me, I don't know. Well, I kept throwing roadblocks in my way when I was trying to become a writer. So that's one of the reasons why my apprenticeship was like sort of the longest of anybody's, I think. But um, it's probably still going on. You get the idea. The really bad part. Um, I did not realize that I would get nowhere until I made my persona a character. Yes. And, and years later, I read an interview with David Sedaris, who we think of as the honest writer writes about his life. And he said he wouldn't be able to write a sentence without thinking of this narrator as a character. But that's what happened to me when I started. And so I let my narrator as a character get much further out there than I'd want to have to defend in regular life, so that's why I don't write personal essays. Other people do, but um, but also what, and 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 it works beautifully. And I taught that personal essay several for several years, and I read I taught beautiful essays by Virginia Woolf and Amy White, all these beautiful, beautiful essays. So I know it to, it to be a beautiful form, but the, I have many problems with self-control. And it wasn't going to be a good form for me. Um, Shoot, there was something else I was going to say about that. Um, Oh, I just, I can't be allowed, you know, that expression, that Frost thing about playing tennis with the net down. Well, that's just me as a writer playing tennis with the net down. Well, poetry, though, is playing tennis with the net up for someone like me, and so that's really important. I need to work in shorter form, more. Whenever I try to write fiction, I am already deeply depressed by the second sentence, because I can't shut up, or whatever it is, this gloom comes over me. I can't keep it punchy.
3: I'm not able
4: out that's So that, in other words, good writing and all three genres could be mistaken for each other. But this wasn't happening for me. It was more like, wow. Thanks for sharing your unbelievable depression in sentence two. So I I can't I can't succeed at that either. So that's a way the poetry thing, the demands of poetry, reading poetry, um, reading my opposites, like I'm reading a lot of Dickinson right now, doing that helps me to, uh, to make it more interesting. And these are be that line that we were talking about. Right. That is like a, a pivot. It's like a dramatic, performative kind of pause. Where like I'm changing gears and and I'm doing this thing as you say it's like more poet more it's not a, it wasn't um, subconsciously done in terms of it having more of a poetic feel in terms of the rhythm but that is what happens when you like fill your writer thing up with poetry and then you can call it up when you need it theoretically it's like an invitation to the muse sort of moment right where you're changing gears you're trying to get a um, you're trying to pivot to something else. And I started of thinking about that line. I started thinking about what in the heck is all that stuff about Sally doing in there anyway? And but whenever I would look at it, I would think, well, I'm keeping it because I know for some reason I think that she's really interesting in the poem. So that's the other thing is that braiding technique. Pretty hard to control. It would be impossible for me to control if I was any longer. But when I sit down to write, I do. Look up, and I've got like eight or ten pages. Just that's just kind of how much I talk. So it's yeah, like, okay, now you need to shut it and figure out. Kind of, it's hard to explain how it works. Every once in a while, it comes out short. Sure. A lot of times, it's, it's way overwritten. I think it's you know, We all play games with ourselves about not getting blocked, and my game is that I get to do whatever I want. <laughs> you know that. Um, that Anne Lamott thing about the shitty rough draft. You know, it's just like okay, met down is I, a lot of times I that poem, the hobby meet, my hobby meet, and hobby. That was all spoken into my uh, into my phone. That's the funny.
0: whole thing. Yeah. I'm actually gonna ask you based on. Um what, what you're saying is if it feels uh, like a monologue to you a lot of the times, so if a monologue in your head, uh, so to speak, or something that would speak yeah, literally speaking. Yeah,
4: I'm yeah. really interested in voice, and I think it's so easy to abuse that, but that doesn't stop me from doing it.
0: Yeah, cool. All right, well, Dana has her, her book here uh, if you'd like to purchase. Uh, thank you, uh, everybody. Uh, this was uh, interesting. Uh, I hope everyone had a good experience. Um, uh, you hang in there with the situation, you know. Uh, ba- uh, Who let the dogs out? So it was released in uh, the summer of 2000 by the Baja Men, I believe. Uh, if you want to look that up, uh, the New York Mets. It was their official team theme song. Uh, for the World Series run that year. Um, So here's a little piece of trivia for you. Thank you. (laughs) We'll be here next month for Saturday of the month. Uh, Thanks to all the readers, and uh, have a great day. All right, take it easy.
3: (laughs) Bye-bye.